My name is Rebecca Meitinger. Thank you for joining me on the Seeking Pearls podcast. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. Today we are going to wrap up the journeys of the Apostle Paul. We do have one more episode in this podcast series during which we will look at the Jesus that Paul preached. But today we will be finishing up his journeys by looking at his arrival in Rome and then even jumping ahead to his release from prison in Rome and what we might suspect happened after that and then looking at his final letter which was written just before his death probably in 67 AD which is Second Timothy his very final letter that he wrote to Timothy and he knows his departure from this world is near and we will look at his closing statements as we have recorded in scripture. We are going to do most of our reading today in Acts chapters 27 and 28, his journey to Rome, but we are going to be jumping around a little bit to some of his other letters, piecing together some very cool things. I find this material absolutely fascinating, and the connections that we're going to see in the early church are just phenomenal as we piece together who was with Paul and who did he know and where were they traveling together and I just think it's completely fascinating and so I hope you enjoy this as well. So to start with today, rather than starting right in Acts chapter 27, which is where we left off, we are actually going to start in the book of Romans, which Paul wrote during his third missionary journey. After he spent three years in Ephesus, he traveled a little bit more through Macedonia, which is present-day Greece, and then down to Corinth, and he stayed for three months in Corinth, Greece. And while in Corinth, he wrote this letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome, which he did not plant and he had never been there, but he knew many of the people. In fact, later on in the podcast, we are going to look at Romans chapter 16, which is Paul's longest list of greetings. He knows so many people in the church in Rome, even though he had never been to Rome. And that just shows us how much the people moved around in the early church. They moved around and they preached the gospel and they networked like crazy. And it's so cool because they had no technology. (laughs) They didn't have smartphones or Facebook or social media or anything like that. And yet they networked in the gospel And they were extraordinarily productive at spreading the good news of Jesus and getting to know one another and connecting to one another. And I find it fascinating and motivating and inspiring and very, very beautiful. So he knows many people in Rome. So while he is in Corinth in about 57 AD, 56 to 57 AD, he writes a letter to the church in Rome expressing his desire to get there. And we're going to start by reading that about his desire to get to Rome. So first he explains why he hasn't yet gotten to Rome. In Romans chapter 15, started in verse 20, he says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That's a quotation he includes from Isaiah 52, verse 15. 
And then he goes back to saying, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. Okay, so he makes it clear, the reason I haven't gotten to you yet is because my mission from God was to preach the gospel where Christ has not yet been preached. Rome already had the gospel. We know way back from Acts chapter 2 during Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, we know that there were Jews from Rome in Jerusalem at that time. It's even possible that Priscilla and Aquila could have been some of those Jews because we know they were Jewish and we know they were from Rome, they could have been in Jerusalem at Pentecost. They could have been some of the people who brought the gospel to Rome. We do not know, but it's so fun to think about. Anyway, Paul goes on in Romans chapter 15, verse 23. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So, after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received the contribution, I will go to Spain, and I will visit you on the way. I know when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. So he has desired to go to Rome for a long time. He is just heading to Jerusalem. Remember we talked about this in our uh, two podcasts ago that people were urging him to not go to Jerusalem because they had visions from God that he was going to be arrested while in Jerusalem. Paul was not hindered by that. Um, And he is just saying, he's just still making plans as if he won't be arrested, but he knows full well that he might be arrested. We learned that when he goes to Jerusalem to bring this offering, he is in fact arrested in Jerusalem. He spends two years in prison in Caesarea. That was our podcast last time. And in those two years of imprisonment in Caesarea, he is staying at Herod's palace on the Mediterranean Sea. He is allotted a great deal of freedom. Both Governor Felix for the first two years and Governor Festus, who then takes over, agree that he is innocent, as does King Agrippa. They all agree that he is innocent, but he appeals to go to Caesar because he knows that he is innocent as well. And so he wants to appeal to Caesar so as not to be held accountable to the Jews who want to kill him. So, He is now on a ship, or he's going to get put on a ship, to go to Rome to appeal to Caesar. Caesar at the time is Emperor Nero, who becomes extraordinarily violent and cruel and evil towards Christians and to Jews. At this point, he is not quite as cruel and evil as he will become in the mid-60s. And so right now... Paul is going to travel to Rome. We are going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 27, beginning at verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. 
we boarded a ship from Adramatium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. All right, I'm just going to pause here for a moment to talk about Aristarchus. We see Aristarchus, we, we met him earlier in the podcast series, and he's from Thessalonica, and we, we don't know exactly when he joined Paul on his journeys, but it seems very likely he joined him as Paul traveled through Thessalonica, because that's where he's from. And we see Aristarchus is with Paul all the way through this first Roman imprisonment. So he becomes a very faithful traveling partner to Paul, a ministry partner. If he started traveling with Paul during his first time in Thessalonica, that would have been about 50 to 51 AD when Paul first traveled through Thessalonica on his second journey. And so if that's when Aristarchus started traveling with Paul, we know that he traveled with him for over 10 years, which is pretty remarkable through imprisonments, through trials, through beatings, possibly through shipwrecks. I mean, certainly through at least one shipwreck that we're going to read about today, but possibly other ones as well, through illness. He became a very faithful traveling companion. Pretty remarkable. In the next several verses, Luke records how they traveled and where they sailed and how much difficulty they had. They end up landing at a place called Fair Havens, which is the island of Crete. I'm going to pick up there in verse 9. It said, Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, so late fall. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. So if you look at a map of the island of Crete, Fair Havens is on the south side of the island, and they want to just sail kind of around the island to reach Phoenix and to spend the winter there. I'm going to continue on. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and they sailed along the shore of Crete. Before long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and we were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it on board. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. I think it's so interesting here that Luke is writing, and Luke uses the word we. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. 
After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice to not sail from Crete, and then you wouldn't have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. This is so wonderful that God gives Paul this vision. An angel of God comes and stands beside Paul. So again, I would say that this is not a vision. It says an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. This has happened a number of times in Paul's ministry, and I just want to go over them a little bit. We've seen them occur, but I want to go back and remember all the different times where God has stood by Paul in a very personal way. So first of all, shortly after conversion, possibly after three years in Arabia, Paul is in Jerusalem and he has to flee really quickly and they send him home to his homeland of Tarsus up to Cilicia. While he's in Jerusalem, we find out later when he is testifying in Acts chapter 22, he says, when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. And then when Paul was in Corinth and everything was getting very, very heated in Corinth, we hear from Paul during his second missionary journey. We hear from Paul, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So then Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. And then in Acts chapter 23, which would have been after he was arrested in Jerusalem around 57 AD, we find out that while in Jerusalem, after the mob broke up, broke out in the Sanhedrin, and it said that the centurion was worried that they were going to tear Paul apart, we find out that while Paul was in prison, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify about me in Rome. And then we have this time during the storm where the Lord comes and sends an angel to stand next to Paul and say again, Keep up your courage. Do not be afraid. Take courage. And then there's going to be one more time, which I'll save for the end of the podcast, where we find out that the Lord came and stood beside Paul and encouraged him. The Lord comes to stand beside Paul so frequently to encourage him. And I think that helps us to understand that Paul is just a very real human being. He gets afraid as well. That's why the Lord comes and stands beside him to give him courage because he is afraid. And so the Lord comes to him gives him strength, 
teaches him, guides him, shows him love and mercy and grace, and gives him courage to move forward in the ministry that God has for him. I think it's so beautiful. I think it shows Paul's humanity and the great love and nearness of our God. And I think it testifies to to the way that God is in our lives as well. God wants us to be so aware of his presence that we know when he is coming to stand next to us, that we, we know when he is here right next to me, empowering me, strengthening me, guiding me, showing me his love, showing me his kindness, showing me who he is. Let us be aware of when God is standing right next to us. So Paul encourages them, and I think it's so fascinating that the angel stood near to Paul and said, nobody on this ship is going to be killed. Nobody is going to be lost, is what the angel said. The ship will be destroyed, the angel makes clear. This is really incredible because we're going to find out later on that there are 276 passengers on this ship. Not one of them is going to be lost Only the ship is going to be lost. On the 14th night, I'm in verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and they found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and they prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, you have been in constant suspense, and you've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. I think that's really amazing. And also, if you think about it, a little bit gross. (laughs) Because they had been in a storm, a a water-soaked ship, for a very long time. And it's been 14 days since they have eaten Can you imagine the state of the bread that they ate? It sounds really, really, really gross. And yet they did it, and they were nourished. They were strengthened by the bread, nonetheless. And then they threw the rest of it overboard. So 276 people had enough to eat, and they threw the rest overboard. Verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach, where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time they untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind, and they made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. 
The bow struck fast and it would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the waves. The soldier planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached the land safely. Just an incredible shipwreck. 276 people made it safely to land because God protected them. That is the only reason God assured them that they would entirely be saved, although the ship would be ruined, and he was faithful to that promise. I want to just remind us that this is not Paul's first shipwreck. He's actually been well acquainted with shipwrecks and with all sorts of torture and hardship. He actually, in about 56 to 57 AD, after his stay in Ephesus, while he's traveling through Macedonia, he writes his what we have in the Bible as our second letter to the Corinthians. And in chapter 11, he is telling them about his hardships, and he includes the fact that he's been through some shipwrecks. So this is about three years prior to the shipwreck we read, read about in Acts chapter 27. So these are additional different shipwrecks that we actually don't have any record of in Acts. So they may have occurred during his missionary journeys, and Luke just didn't record it because his focus was on the journeys, the missionary journeys, rather than on the hardships of the sea. Or some of them could have occurred during that 10-year period that we talked about many podcasts ago when he probably went home to Tarsus for up to a decade. There could have been shipwrecks during that time as well if he was traveling. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 24, he says, Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. So this is not his first shipwreck. And it sounds like it might not be his worst shipwreck because he was he spent a night and a day in the open sea. I'm not sure what that means. I think I've heard other versions say adrift in the open sea. Not sure exactly what that means, but was he like floating on a plank for a night and a day at some point? He is accustomed to shipwrecks. I'm going to continue on in Acts chapter 28 and we'll find out what happens and where they find out they are. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us an unusual kindness. They built a fire and they welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and they said he was a god. 
<laughs> Isn't that, it's kind of funny, right? So first they think, oh, this must be the goddess Justice having justice on him because he must be a murderer, so he's going to die from the snake bite. And then right away when he doesn't die, they com- they go like a total 180 and they're like, oh, he's a god, and so they want to worship him. He shuts that down. Nearby, though, in verse 7, there was an estate that belonged to Publius, the chief officer of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, he placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came, and they were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with all the supplies we needed. Isn't that kind of Luke, the physician, to talk about the healing of this man who is very, very ill, and the physician does not appear to be part of the healing, just Paul, who lays his hands on him, prays for him, and he is healed miraculously by Paul, not by Luke. I mean, obviously, by God. God miraculously heals him. But then God allows, through Paul, through the power of prayer and the laying on of hands, God allows many people on the island to be cured. So we can assume that the whole time, those three months that they were in Malta, they were preaching the gospel in power. There were miracles happening. And tradition in Malta marks Paul's stay as the beginning of an unbroken Christianity. So a church was planted and lasted, has lasted for 2,000 years because of this shipwreck that brought the Apostle Paul to Malta. After three months, they left and they began sailing for Rome. It says, we put in at Syracuse and we stayed there for three days. I'm in Acts chapter 28, verse 12. We put in at Syracuse and we stayed there for three days. From there, we set sail and we arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up and on the following day, we reached Petoli, which is on the, the western coast of Italy, south of Rome. There, we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum and the Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. So they traveled many miles. The people from Rome traveled many miles to the south, to the southeast, to greet Paul and to really welcome him and then walk into Rome with him. And it's interesting because it says, at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And so that the, the way that his phrase makes a person wonder if he was getting scared and nervous, if he was somehow losing courage. And so then when God prompted these people from Rome, Christians from Rome, to travel quite a distance, many miles, a few days travel, to, this, to the town of Three Taverns, and Paul saw them and was greeted by them, if that just is like a little gift that Paul needed to set his heart at ease and to give him the courage he needed as he entered into Rome. 
It says in verse 16, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. I want to pause here because I want to think about who were these people who knew that Paul was coming and who came down uh, many miles, a few days travel to meet them at the town of three taverns. So what I'd like to do is I would like to jump over to Romans chapter 16 and read this list, the longest list of greetings recorded in any of Paul's letters. Read this list of people that he knows in the church in Rome, even though he had not ever been there before this. And I have to wonder and assume that many of the people in this list are the ones who traveled from Rome to three taverns to be this welcoming party. So first in chapter 16, first the first people he greets in, in verse 3. So I'm in Romans chapter 16. The first people he greets are Priscilla and Aquila. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Okay, so they were from Rome, and Paul actually met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth on his second missionary journey, and we learn in Acts chapter 18 that Priscilla and Aquila had left Rome after Emperor Claudius had made all the Jews move out of Rome. That happened in AD 48. Nero took over in 54 AD and allowed the Jews back in. This time, when the letter to the Romans was written, was about 56 to 57 AD. So we know that Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul met in Corinth, and then they traveled to Ephesus with him, and they were in Ephesus with him for a while at least, but at some point after the Jews were allowed back into Rome, it's clear here that they moved back to Rome. So he greets Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 5 of Romans 16. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Now that is so cool. The first convert to Christ in the province of Asia, Epinetus. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, a husband and wife team. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So we don't know where they were in prison with him. If there was a possible imprisonment in Ephesus, it could have been there, but we're not sure where that imprisonment was with Adronicus and, Ju and Junia. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. I want to pause there and talk about that description because I think it's phenomenal. I would love for this to be able to be said about me. Rebecca, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. I think that is the most beautiful thing that you could say about a person. And that's what he says about Apelles, who we know nothing else about. In verse 10, Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. I think it's an absolutely extraordinary statement to make about a person. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristopolis. Greet 
Herodian, my fellow Jew, greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Okay, this is really, really an amazing connection in scripture. So Rufus, we know from Mark's gospel account, we know that Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross for Jesus, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, interestingly, Mark more than likely, almost certainly, wrote his gospel from Rome in the early 60s AD. So Rufus is in Rome, and if Mark wrote his gospel account from Rome, the reason that he would say that Simon of Cyrene was Alexander and Rufus's father is because Alexander and Rufus are known to the church in Rome. So the Rufus here who Paul is greeting, is almost certainly the same Rufus as is the son of Simon of Cyrene. Now, his mother, who has been a mother to me too, well, now that's interesting because if Rufus is living in Rome, we know that Simon, Rufus's dad, and therefore his mom, was actually from Cyrene. Probably, they probably grew, Rufus probably grew up in Cyrene. But the church, the early church, was they moved around a lot, and because ministry and preaching the gospel was what they did, it, they moved around to preach the gospel. And so now they're living in Rome. But when was Rufus's mom a mother to Paul? Well, here is a possibility that I think is really compelling and so exciting. We learned early on in the podcast series that it's possible that Simon of Cyrene is also Simeon the Niger who traveled to Antioch to plant the church in Antioch because he is listed with Lucius of Cyrene as, as going to plant that church in Antioch. So it's very, very possible that during the Apostle Paul's time in Antioch, when he pastored in Antioch, with Simeon the Niger and with Barnabas, it's possible that at that time, Simon of Cyrene's wife, who is the mother of Rufus, became like a mother to Paul. And again, we might assume it's possible that Paul was abandoned or kicked out of his own family when he came to Christ. We don't know that, but it's possible. And so he could have been looking for a mother figure, needed a mother figure in his life, and Simon of Cyrene's wife possibly is the one who filled that role. Super, super cool. All right, verse 14. Greet Asinicris, Phlegion, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogius, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches in Christ send greetings to you. So in that list, Paul names 26 people and then includes two others. He includes Rufus's mother, but we don't have his name. I mean, we don't have her name. And then he includes Nereus and his sister, but we don't have her name. So he includes 28 specific people in this list. And he has never yet been to Rome. 
I have learned from other Bible teachers that this list includes about half males, half females. It includes names that were very common for slaves, and it includes names that were very much assumed to be wealthy or aristocrats. So this list covers the gamut of of people. All people are included in Christ. There's no male or female, slave or free, barbarian, Scythian. All are one in Christ Jesus. And that is very, very clear in his list that he makes to the Romans. And so who are these people who are traveling from Rome to come and greet him in the city of three taverns? They are very likely many of these people. One thing that is really interesting as well that I read about in John Pollock's book, The Apostle, he just made a a comment that as they were sailing to the coast, to the western coast of Italy, and they landed in Putoli, that they actually sailed right past the city of Pompeii. So they would have seen Mount Vesuvius, and it was only, if this is 60 AD, it's just 19 years later that Mount Vesuvius erupts. So that's just something, an interesting anecdote. So they are in Rome. Paul is encouraged by all of these people who came to greet him. When they get to Rome, he is allowed to live by himself in a rented house that he has to pay for with a soldier to guard him. We learn through some of his other letters, specifically Philippians, which most scholars believe that he wrote in about 62 AD, near the end of his imprisonment here in Rome. He writes them and he's thanking them for supporting him, for sending financial support. And so how did he pay for this church in Rome? Very likely through financial support. Is he still making leather work and selling it? Possibly. Possibly he does that while he's there. We don't know. Is the church in Rome, the Christians in Rome, are they giving him financial support? Very, very possibly. So we're just not sure, but somehow he pays for this house by himself. The first thing he does, just a few days after he arrives in Rome, we find out that he invites local Jewish leaders to his house and he preaches the gospel. They came and they listened to him and then they leave and then they come again. So I'm going to pick up in verse 23 of chapter 28. They arranged, this is the Jewish leaders, They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. So these are Jewish leaders. Paul is continuing his pattern of preaching to the Jews first, and then always, always going to the Gentiles after preaching to the Jews. So verse 23, I'm going to read again. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning until evening. Can you imagine? His house is full. Large numbers came to meet. And he is preaching the gospel to them from morning to evening. Now, these are the Jewish leaders. So what is he saying to them from morning to evening? He is tying together the Old Testament prophecies. Everything that the Old Testament says that points us to Jesus. The Old Testament has hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and then ones that will be fulfilled in his second coming. But he is proving to them that word has been used in other places in the book of Acts. So he goes through the Old Testament, which all of these Jewish leaders would have memorized, and he shows them how it points to Jesus. So 
He witnessed them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and the prophets, and tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves, and they began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and then he says to them, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Now, he has written in his letter to the, to the church in Rome, which he wrote three years before this, he wrote to them that the closing of the hearts of the Jews is temporary so that the Gentiles, us, all of us non-Jews, that we get a chance to be grafted into the gospel story. Salvation extended to what is extended to us through a temporary hardening of the Jewish hearts. And then he wraps up by reminding them that all Israel will be saved. And I believe that with my whole heart that all Israel will be saved. So the Gentiles get to be grafted in. So he tells that to the Jews. Some of the Jews believe, others don't believe. But in verse 30, it says this. This is how the book of Acts ends. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. For two years, Paul rented this house in Rome. He was waiting to be under trial before Emperor Nero. That's why he's in Rome. So he's a prisoner, but he's he's renting a house. He is chained to a Roman guard at all times. And the whole time he is chained to this Roman guard, people are coming into his house, taking care of him, bringing him meals, greeting him, helping him with ministry. And he is preaching the gospel to everyone that comes in the door. We find out through his letters that there are people in prison with him. Luke is there. Timothy is often there. Aristarchus is there. So we know he has people who are staying with him, who he calls co-prisoners, whether or not they are imprisoned as well or they choose to be there with him is unclear. But for two years, people are coming to see him and he is preaching the gospel to everybody without fear, with all boldness and without hindrance. There's no hindrance. So imagine these guards, these Roman guards who are hearing the gospel constantly. Also, through Paul's letters that we know he wrote during this time, the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians, and then also the letter to Philemon, we know that he spent a great deal of time praying because he records, especially in the book of Ephesians, he records many of his prayers that he has for these people. And in the book of Colossians, he writes about how hard he works in prayer. And he writes about Epaphras, who is the one who initially evangelized the church in Colossae, who is there in Rome with Paul at this point. He writes about Epaphras and talks about how greatly 
Epaphras is praying for the people and wrestling in prayer for them. So these Roman guards, and you know, if they are chained to Paul, and if Paul is getting down on his knees, which he describes, if if Paul is getting down on his knees with his face to the ground in prayer, so are the guards. <laughs> they're getting down on their knees because they're chained to him. And they might have to spend hours in kneeling positions because that's what how Paul is. And they are on their knees listening to this man pray, listening to Epaphras pray, listening to Aristarchus pray. Uh, we know that Mark is, especially while he writes the letter to the Colossians, we know that Mark is there with him, the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Interestingly, the same Mark who abandoned Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey, Paul has restored his relationship with him, and they are close partners in ministry at this point, and Mark is with him in Rome. Possibly Peter is in Rome under imprisonment at the same time, and uh, because we know that Mark worked very closely with Peter, and so Peter might be in Rome at the same time. One thing that is really, really amazing to me as we look at the letters that Paul wrote from this time period while he was in prison in Rome, we have reason to believe that he wrote Colossians and Ephesians at the beginning portion of this day in Rome. The reason for that is because in Colossians and in Ephesians, there is no hint that he is expecting an answer soon. But in Philippians, he writes about how he is awaiting his answer. And he says, which I think I read in, read in the last podcast, for, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he is expecting an answer very soon. So it seems that Philippians is written at the latter end of this two-year imprisonment. And I want you to listen to a couple of the things that he writes in each of these three letters. So Colossians and Ephesians, again, were written probably at the front end of this two years. In Colossians, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he's writing to the church in Colossae, and he asks them to pray for him. He says, Pray for us, too, that God might open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it boldly, as I should. And then at the same time, he wrote Ephesians, and they were delivered at the same time by a man named Tychicus. So at the same time, he wrote to the Ephesians, and he said something very, very similar. In chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he said, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words might be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I would declare it fearlessly as I should. So in both of those letters, he asks the people to pray for him that he would preach the gospel boldly and fearlessly. And it's so cool because in his prayer request for the Colossians, he said, pray that God will open a door. I think that is phenomenal because we read in Acts chapter 28, verse 30, that for two years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Okay, the door that God opened is literally the door to Paul's house. <laughs> Can you believe that? It's literally the door to Paul's own house is the door that God opened for the gospel to be preached. 
And it says in Acts that he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, which is exactly what he asked the people of Colossae and Ephesus to pray for for him. They did pray and he did preach the gospel. Now, it gets even cooler if that's possible. If he really did write Philippians at the latter end of this two years, because it has hints that he's expecting an answer very soon, he writes in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. <laughs> Two years later, he says that this has happened and it has advanced the sake of Christ. And all of the brothers and sisters have grown more bold because of my imprisonment. And he says, it's even clear throughout the whole palace guard. Even the palace guard are learning about Jesus because of my imprisonment. Why? Well, because he's chained the guards. <laughs> the guards take their turn. They, they serve their hours. They serve their duty. And the whole time they are learning about Jesus. And then at the end of Philippians, he is doing his greetings and he says to the people in Philippi, all of God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Because of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, because of being chained to guards who are hearing the gospel constantly, who belong to Caesar's palace guard, the household of Caesar is hearing the gospel and accepting Christ and stopping by to visit Paul and as Paul is writing letters, they're like, oh, say hi from us. Say hi from us. Give them our greetings. Wish them the love of Christ from us. It is just phenomenal, phenomenal, the networking and the ministry that goes on while Paul's in prison for the sake of Christ. What happens after Paul is released in about 62 AD? We don't necessarily know for sure. There are reasons to believe by other historians, although not in scripture, that he did in fact make it to Spain. Clement, who worked closely with Paul, is recorded in the late first century as saying that, that Paul did go on to Spain. And other, other early church fathers have written down in historical records that Paul did go on to Spain, but we have nothing biblically to tell us that Paul made it to Spain. And then we know that he traveled around Macedonia more. We know that he traveled around Corinth more. The reason we know that is because there are little blips written in First and Second Timothy and in Titus, which are his last letters he ever wrote. We know that there, there are little blips that tell us where he was and where he met people and where he dropped off people for ministry. The last letter that Paul wrote in 67 AD was the letter to this letter of 2 Timothy. He is writing to Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus, 
And it's very, very clear in his writing that he is expecting an answer very soon from Nero and that he knows his time is done. I'm going to read a couple of his remarks to people and then I'm going to read you his closing statements. I'm going to piece together little bits of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy as we close the story on Paul's life. I'm going to start just by reading about some of the people that he has worked with. This is really important to me. That's why we took the time to read all of Romans 16 when he's greeting all these people. We've talked about so many people over the course of this podcast series. We've talked about so many people who have worked with Paul. And his connection to individuals, his care for individuals, and the way that they have networked together in the gospel is absolutely beautiful and inspiring for the church today that we need each other we need each other in ministry in the proclamation of the gospel it was never meant to be done alone and the apostle paul is living proof of that so he's writing to timothy he knows soon an answer will come and he says do your best to come to me quickly for demas because he loved this world has deserted me and gone to thessalonica Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus till Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me now. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. That might be letters, <laughs> the parchments. It, it could be letters that Paul has written to and from other places and he wants those with him. They are very dear to his heart. So we see there that Luke is with him now. He has dropped other people off. He has sent Crescens to do ministry in Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia, which is current day Yugoslavia. Uh, Demas has deserted him. He is sending people out in ministry. And then what's super interesting is at the end of this chapter, the end of chapter 4, in verse 19, he greets Priscilla and Aquila. Now, he's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus. In 57 AD, when Paul wrote his letter to Rome, we found out that Priscilla and Aquila were back in Rome. Now, in about 67 AD, we find out that Priscilla and Aquila went back to Ephesus. Remember, they had helped Paul to plant this church in Ephesus, and now they're back there. So he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, so do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. So he has many, many greetings. He wants Timothy to know about where people are. And he really wants to see Timothy. Please get here before winter. Because he knows his time is short and he wants to see Timothy before he leaves this world. We don't know if that ever was able to happen. Now I'm going to read to you the last two passages that I will read in this podcast today. I'm going to read a couple of statements he makes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that are just beautiful about his expectations of the coming kingdom. Chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, 
the righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Isn't that beautiful? He knows that he will be awarded a crown of righteousness. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And the Lord will reward me with a crown. I'm going to close with chapter 16 or chapter 4 verses 16 through 18. At my first defense, which must mean in this second imprisonment in Rome, he had a trial already and he's awaiting a final answer. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. By this time, by 67 AD, Nero is vicious and evil and is killing Christians by the many, 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 many Christians are being killed at this point in horrible, horrific, violent, unimaginable ways. And Paul says in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. According to tradition, Paul is beheaded in 67 AD under Nero. Beheaded. He gets his head cut off. And he says, the Lord will deliver me safely into his kingdom. No matter what happens to our physical body, the Lord is going to deliver us safely into his kingdom. Nothing that any person, no emperor could ever do anything to Paul that would interfere with Jesus bringing Paul safely into his kingdom. Dear friend, no matter what happens to us on earth, if we are in Christ, we will be brought safely into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of eternity forever and ever. Take heart, take courage, take courage. Amen and amen. We'll have one more podcast together, and it will be passages that Paul wrote about Jesus, the Jesus whom Paul preached. And I'm super excited for that, to study that with you. Have a good day. Bye.